Hamilton is a steel town, um, one of the most major sort of steel industries that Canada had historically. Like most steel towns, it, it uh, has had big ups and big, big downs. Since the 1970, the steel in industry, which at its height employed over half of the, uh, offered over, a, over half of the jobs of the city, uh, had in about 40 years dwindled to about um, 5 or 10% of the jobs. We've completely become a post-industrial city, but we're very much industrial in, in, uh, in our heritage. Um, so Hamilton is also really interesting because it's known as one of the locus uh, points for um, uh, labor the labor movement and labor activism and the beginning of the kind of union movement in the, in the pre and post-war uh, era in Canada. So it, it's a great city because it holds on to a lot of that history. The history is very evident, like a lot of um, industrial mid-sized cities in, in, in North America, there's quite an edifice and it kind of influences a lot of how um, Hamilton artists make art. Um, this is a not psychic booth and um, a lot of forces kind of come together uh, to make this. And I thought I would just sort of go back uh, through a bit of my practice to kind of explain why it is that I'm here making such a thing as a, as a not psychic booth. Um, and it begins with a series of performance structures um, that I've been making for the last couple of decades. Those structures begin with uh, these buttons. Um, and in the early 2000s, after having tried and hit, after hitting a ton of roadblocks, trying to kind of eke out a life as a performer, as a, as a musician with a band, um, uh, I, I was at a crossroads where I was in, immensely frustrated with myself because uh, even though I love being on stage and I love writing songs and I love performing music um, as well as having a visual art practice, um, I didn't like the, the self-promotion, the sort of uh, networking, all of these social dynamics that, that, that were involved, even, even managing a band was enough to kind of blow my head apart. And, Having given up some of my aspirations as a performer, I hit this moment where I thought I could take some of those feelings and sort of fold them into the art that I was making. And one of the first things I did is I thought, well, I've sort of, I've created a sort of toxicity in my mind by fixating on notions of fame, of like climbing a ladder as a performer and, and always seeking to uh, play bigger rooms and being in front of bigger bigger people as a measure of success. You can come in. You can come in. If you like. No worries. And so I made this button as a way to kind of force myself to think the opposite. What would what would it mean if I started to seek out performance circumstances that were deliberately uh, moving the other way, sort of plowing headfirst into obscurity? 
So um, I started doing projects. This is in Saskatoon. Um, it's a series of, of what I call unlikely concerts, uh, where we would poster all over the city, uh, advertising that I'm playing a concert, but not disclose the exact location, so that people who wanted to come had to were given the instructions somewhere in the woods, and and then I would do in a in a men's bathroom, and then I would do in a in a stairwell, and I would take these try and take these these moments. I went through the mental exercise of trying to really think of like these moments as pinnacle moments, like signature moments. I would never play these venues again. They were, they were really special. I really felt that the audience that took, whose curiosity led them to come to these, to these concerts needed to be rewarded. So I tried to do things like write songs that were specific to these circumstances, songs that would be sung in a stairwell and then never sung again. So there would be a real, a singularity to these moments um, as a kind of reward. And, and I was really lit up by, by this exercise. I really found that, that it changed the behavior of the audience, the audience that decided to kind of meet my challenge and, and meet me in these awkward spaces, um, were ready to kind of fight to make the moment special. So uh, uh, I found that I was really, really well rewarded for this effort because I was fighting to try and make a concert work in an awkward space. They were trying to make uh, an awkward space work for themselves as an audience. So I, I really started to think about what are ways that we can really impose hard limits on performance and, per, and, and, and these sort of public stages that would really um, test the metal. And so uh, after doing those projects, I built this thing called the Mono Theatrum, which is a, a little miniature concert hall that really only fits one performer. It's, this, it's a stage that's in a kind of cocooned environment. The materials, because I'm Hamiltonian, and I think I have this because of its industrial history, because reclaiming materials is a big part of the culture there, I was able to reclaim claim a bale of industrial felt um, also much of the wood on the stage was beachcombed off of Lake Ontario. And I was able to make this incredible, to me, an incredibly personally charged space. Um, and then we were able to invite performers in to climb into the chamber and give concerts to, to no one, maybe, but also people who, who were around the outside. So there was this perfect disconnect between the performer and, and a supposed audience. So a performer would go in there, they would give a concert of up to an hour in length, and they would not know in the galleries where the, this work was situated if an audience was, was formed or if they were in an empty room. What was really thrilling to me is that a lot of the performers that we invited in was the range of response. I had professional musicians come in and then leave saying, never ask me to do that again. It was horrible because I know what to do when I play for people and I know how to rehearse by myself. But I don't know, I can't be in a circumstance where I don't know what is happening. I don't know if I'm playing on my own or, or to people. On the other side, we had people that were, that were signing up to be part of this saying, I've always wanted to play publicly. It terrifies me. I've only ever played, played my instrument in the basement. I feel safe here, and now I can say I played at an art gallery. <laughs> and, 
So again, this led to a whole series of performance sculptures. I was really fixated. I made a lot of jokes about uh, the singer-songwriter stool um, being a kind of precious space, like I have a very important song, you have to listen to the words, it's all, these are my feelings, that kind of <laughs> energy. So I thought, well, I'll make a really big one. I think that seat is about 14 feet off the ground. And then with the kind of irony that if you're going to sit in the chair, your head fits into a box and no one really gets to see you. And that uh, cable is a mic cable going out of, um, of the structure. Very, again, climbing, climbing up is hazardous a little bit. I sort of had to ask other performers to make a verbal waiver with me so they wouldn't get, uh, I wouldn't be worried about their safety. Uh, this is called Viking Soliloquy Chair. Uh, my father is Norwegian, and uh, I lost him rather suddenly in the early 2000s, and I was meditating on kinds of uh, poems that I, would, I, could, I could utter, but didn't like the idea of other people attending, so I thought, well, a good way to do that publicly was to float a raft in the middle of the lake. Um, as these ideas started to build, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to travel a little bit through Canada. This is in Lethbridge, Alberta. This is the foyer of the University of Lethbridge. And we built this tent. Uh, um, I went there and uh, went to thrift stores and bought a little bit of straight lumber. We built this uh, circumstance called Unlikely Concerts. We Again, we posted through the campus looking for musicians who were always wanted to play for people but were um, filled with shyness or social anxiety about it. And we said, well, you come into the tent, only musicians are allowed in the tent, um, and you can play to your heart's content, and the people the, in the commons of the, the university can, can hear what you're doing, but you never have to be looked at. And it was an amazing, again, another amazing for me, social experiment where uh, all of these musicians sort of came uh, were immediately attracted to the idea, immediately felt sort of safe within this space, and then were able to sort of uh, run that for a week or so. This is called uh, the Mobile Workers Song Cart. That was the idea that these cocoons could travel from place to place, like Vagabond shows. This is a death trap. I almost killed myself uh, in this thing, so maybe a less said, the better about that. Um, uh, this is called, the, this next song is very special. Again, I was thinking, I really, at this point, I was sticking my head in so many boxes, I was really excited by the, this idea of public blindness as a way to um, really usher out um, per, per, performance and performance ideas. So uh, the idea of a really awkward uh, sort of head contraption that I would use um, in outdoor street festivals, knowing that uh, I'm walking, I'm walking blind. The other thing with a lot of these objects is that I, I continued what I did with the unlikely concerts, which was I was looking for very specific content. So I was I, I, would, I would make objects like these and immediately write write music that would only be performed with the object. So. Um, uh, anywhere I lay my head, I think that what it, there, uh, has an original song that I sing while, while I wear it. And I ended up building about a repertoire of three pieces that I, I could use in public settings. Um, again, 
maybe stupid, because it's, I was so afraid, because I'm a large man, I was so afraid of trampling children. Uh, but nothing happened, and they were, they were really... You were, I was, I was, I had a safety in that the, the mouthpiece, if I scrunched down, I could peek out just to get my bearings. But other than that, I was blind and I was like there walking very slowly and being as loud and as present as possible just to, for my own safety. Um, this is a work called I Am Bigger Than You Know. Again, I was starting to think about uh, all these works were very much predicated around me and my own practice. I started to think about people who worked in other creative disciplines, like dancers probably having similar uh, phobias about social space. And I started to think about, well, maybe a shadow box would work. And, and so I started to construct a few of them um, with that intent. Uh, the shadow boxes led to, uh, this is called the uh, Cabinet of Intimacies, I think. It was erected in a hotel in Kitchener, Ontario for six months and uh, contains a capture of a shadow of a performer who's um, getting ready to perform, rehearsing. Uh, that, was, that to me was a really interesting category of space too, this notion of rehearsal um, being a very private moment that a performer has to, to get ready for something and often one that they uh, really emphatically don't want people to in on. They don't want, artists often don't want to see those preparatory moments that go into a performance. And I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if there's a way that we can view um, some of that energy. And so it was like capturing shadows, putting the shadows in, in boxes, it led to some other performance activities where I would um, bring several of these sculptures to a public space, invite musicians, give them a set of instructions not to perform concerts, but to do everything that happens prior to a performance so that um, people can, can hopefully attend them and, and feel slightly a kind of voyeuristic uh, feeling of seeing, of, of witnessing something that's very private. And so this is a theme that comes back time and time again because I'm really interested in, in um, the dynamic between private and public space and the kind of impossibility of knowing if you can blend those two, two spaces together. Do, can they exist simultaneously somehow? And so these are sort of very sort of personal attempts to, to uh, uh, erect those spaces and to see what happens with those spaces and to see how people respond to those spaces. Uh, this is the last project that I did before coming here. I did it this last year. Um, and uh, it is called the Aqua Vecchio, or uh, window addressing. And I was part of a larger project that responded to uh, an environmental issue that was happening right at the corner of Lake Ontario. It is um, a wetland known as the, the Dundas Marsh, or uh, colloquially as Coots Paradise. And uh, there was a massive sewage spill that happened in the wetlands, and um, kind of a political cover-up. And uh, a number of artists were brought in to create work that would, ad that would uh, address the environmental concern. There was a small pedestrian bridge that overlooked uh, one of the major 
parts of the spill. And um, this notion, this idea was talked about that bridges as being a, a place where people don't stop often. It's a, it's a passageway. And when they do stop, they stop briefly. And so I built this structure as a kind of way uh, to invite performers and pedestrians to, to stop, to engage, to think, to make a kind of formal um, statement if they wanted to. I made a, a bullhorn out of tin, tin if they wanted to yell at any local politicians for the cover-up. They could look out the window and apologize to the water if they wanted to do. They could leave messages on a chalkboard. There was a mirror for them to sort of self-reflect before they did it. There was a little bit of a book exchange. People were bringing their own objects to, in, to inform the space. So the whole idea was just um, how to use these kooky structures to get people to stop, how to use them as performance circumstances so that I can invite other uh, creative contributors to um, into these moments. So that in a nutshell is uh, the sorts of works that inform uh, this baby here, the not psychic booth. So, oh. so the first iteration of the not psychic booth happened in a public festival in Hamilton, Ontario called Supercrawl. Supercrawl attracts an audience of about 100,000 people. It fills the main uh, uh, main, main street of the city, one of the oldest streets of the city, James Street North. Um, and uh, it's a three-day festival, and uh, there's quite a bit, there's quite a vigorous dialogue about how to situate um, art projects within this festival, because this festival uh, tries to showcase the visual arts as well as putting on concerts and having vendors and, and um, a whole array of other activities. But there's a big, um, within my community, there's a big kind of resistance to this notion of kind of plop and drop sculptural objects for people to look at. So the idea of like, how can artists do things that uh, will really prompt social engagement um, is very uh, front of mind for a lot of the artists that uh, want to participate in this festival. Uh, how to, how to, um, make people stop, change their behaviors, bring them into conversation. So um, I built this uh, not psychic booth. It was all, again, predicated on a bit of like a one-liner a one uh, joke, this idea that fortune tellers have these pretty little booths that they get to use. Uh, but what about everyone else? And what about people who don't have psychic ability? Are there, is there a way for people to um, be drawn into really interesting conversations, one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations in the middle of a vibrant uh, street festival, could we completely use these uh, structures to create really intimate, semi-private space um, that functions? And so uh, I enlisted, a t hired a team of eight um, tellers who all were of different um, creative disciplines. Uh, the, there were visual artists, there were uh, poets, there were people from theater, there were social workers. Um, it was my son, who was 11 at the time, who, uh, and, and we had these meetings saying, all right, it's a booth called Not Psychic. What I want you to do is, uh, in, 
is the first thing that you need to say to everyone who sits down is that you are not psychic and you do not have uh, any professed psychic ability. But what you are is, is this. And they may say, I'm a working writer. And here are, here are these creative skills that I can bring to a, a really interesting exchange with somebody, presumably, that they've never met. So Gary Barwin is quite an accomplished writer um, in Hamilton, Ontario. He had uh, a vintage typewriter uh, on a pivoting table. And he would begin typing uh, an open-ended poem and have respondents type a message back. My son interviewed people for their, and asked them what their worst fear was, and he, he drew uh, very detailed pictures of the sort of monster avatar of that fear. And I did some things, I experimented all over the place with some drawing exercises and some, some sort of automatic uh, songwriting that would happen just after um, a conversation. Um, and was really, really, really amazed at the caliber of exchange that we had. Not only that, but, but during this festival, that lineup would start at about noon and there would be a lineup um, uh, sometimes till two in the morning. Uh, we were just running constantly. And I told the artists that they weren't to, they didn't, they were to obviously manage their own exhaustion with the process, but as long as they felt the conversation was fruitful, the conversations could be of any, any length. And so people were really forthcoming, uh, really open-minded open and curious, which I didn't expect, because I honestly thought people would like, oh, this is a goofy joke. Uh, but we were able to kind of build and establish a lot of depth uh, into, the, into the experience. And it ended up being very, um, <clears throat> It ended up being very resonant with the artists that that uh, that we worked with. So, um, so when I learned about this residency, I thought this would be an amazing uh, for me to try and to try and redo this work. It's similar to how I brought the work in Lethbridge. Can I take the idea of the work? Come. Come find straight lumber, find, uh, well, what ends up being craft paper from in the back of the shop and, and pulling furniture from upstairs. And can we put it together as an idea and make it work in, in, in a community like this? Um, which has been really thrilling. Because so much of my object making is about like reclaimed materials and the materials have a sort of personal charge, I thought, what what could I do to to make give it that resonance for for me and so these um, oh that's that's a cutaway of the interior very basic um, you see the rotating table there we had a veil too for extra mystery uh, when we did it the first time um, and then I wanted to figure out how how can I make the object unique or 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 personalized and so I have been working on this other set of work which is part of what I part of the work I want to continue on while I'm uh, here with the residency I've been working with just building simple logos or icons or or shapes and then trying to trying to trying to force myself to have a relationship with them if that is clear um, maybe it's not so I will illustrate the one of the chief 
um, symbols that I've been working with for the last decade has been uh, this THMB. It's it's a crest. It's known in the vernacular as a double swallowtail crest. That THMB, which stands for Toronto, Hamilton, and Buffalo, it's the logo that represents a rail line that connected Toronto, Hamilton, and Buffalo as cities. It was an important uh, train, um, important industrial conduit for about 100 years uh, in southern Ontario and, and um, upstate New York. And uh, that logo is everywhere. The vestige of it is all over the city. And, and uh, I uh, have worked with a number of other artists. We formed a collective called THMB uh, because the, the railway, which went, uh, which was defunct as of I think the mid 80s, um, uh, the railway was gone, the logo was still there. We thought, wouldn't it be interesting as an artistic? Uh, project to resurrect the, the railway in spirit. So what can we do as artists that will connect and build a stable connection between uh, Toronto, Hamilton, and Buffalo? Hamilton and Toronto don't, we generally don't play well because we, I think Hamilton has a bit of an inferior inferiority complex uh, because Toronto's so much bigger. Um, but we love Buffalo and in truth we thought we were mature enough to get through our differences. So this collective of artists started to do these large um, warehouse shows. We've done uh, three large warehouse shows in the last uh, decade and a bit, um, where we invite artists from uh, each of those two cities to come to Hamilton and do projects. And then we've since done smaller projects in Toronto and in Buffalo as well, sort of, sort of to try and like build this um, connectability between between artist cultures so and we use the th a modified version of the THMB train logo uh, to to kind of graphically sell these projects and what ended up happening is that the collective of artists that was working with this began to get really 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 attached to this swallowtail emblem and so THMB this artist collective that I'm part of began making more and more objects just two months ago, we uh, finished casting the double swallowtail as a frying pan um, so that we can bring this emblem back into sort of social use. So this was, um, again, a kind of an artist-only artist party where, where the four core members of the collective used the pan and we just, we cooked all night for, for, for people to draw the community together. So, in the end, what happens is that this shape now becomes, it becomes deeply embedded. And I'm interested, I've been interested in Hamilton with other, with other similar shapes. This is that building in the top corner is one of the main buildings for our steel industry, a company called Stelco. Um, the, the logo again has a ubiquity in the city of uh, Hamilton. The, it's, called the, it's called the dog bone, and uh, the Stelco logo sort of over the over decades, it, the logo shifts and changes. And I was really interested in, in, in seeing if very similar to the swallowtail crest of THMB, can we uh, start, can I start building a relationship with the dog bone and doing more interesting things with the dog bone? So like the crest, 
I start with drawing and I try and sort of mathematically um, configure a sort of perfect version of, of the logo's shape, sort of try and find something that's built on curves and lines that are proportional to one another. Um, that's partly like uh, a fanciful idea I have, but it also has a very prag pragmatic aspect in that I, I teach myself how to draw it at any scale and I can reproduce it and make tiny drawings out of it and, uh, and larger sculptural objects if I want to. It has a kind of plasticity um, once you learn how the, how the, how the object is configured. Um, this was a test that was made uh, during a residency I did in 2018 where I was in Tallinn, Estonia, which is uh, just south of the coast of Finland and bordering Russia. I was feeling very homesick. I was taking photographs of chipped paint and other sort of industrial surfaces as a way to kind of like make myself feel more at home. And then I, I started to think about combining some of the things that I, I'd seen within um, the, the shape that I already have a relationship to. So it, it, it allows me to kind of make a hybrid of, of two different geographic spaces, but it, it fully embeds my sort of uh, connection to it. Um, and so that's kind of everything that informs what's going to happen here. We're going to, starting next Wednesday, we're, gonna, we're starting to take appointments. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the not-psychic-in-residence, but I'm hoping maybe that's not such a fixed thing, and one of you brave souls will say, I'm ready to do some readings too. Um, it's kind of a beautiful experiment. There's going to be lots of sort of, it's a nice creative exchange, and I'm really trying to see how my experience of Homer gets affected by the fact that I get to have sort of uh, really interesting one-on-one -on -one exchanges with uh, the people that are here. Um, so yeah, I'd really appreciate it if you'd, uh, if you'd sign up. And uh, yes, and thank you so much to the team of the Benel Art Center, Adele, uh, Brianna, Brianna, Asia, Michael. This is such an amazing place. I, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just a, a Hat full of magic. <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks.